surely this is not what we are made for. Just to be a massive group of wind chasers. So this morning we do begin a brand new study series in the book of Ecclesiastes. So if your Bible is open to the Psalms, if you turn forward just a couple of books, we're going to go Psalms and then you're going to hit the Proverbs. And after Proverbs, you're going to get to a book called Ecclesiastes. And this morning we begin a journey, a walk, a study, a series, whatever you like to describe what we do together and encounter in the book of Ecclesiastes. And having meaning to our lives is something that we all want, isn't it? No matter who we are, where we're from, where we're going in life, where we're at in our faith walk, the journey that we're all on. Having meaning to our lives is something that we all want. We all want to feel like we matter, like we're going to be remembered positively and that we're making a difference with what uh, we're doing. This is something that we all want in various degrees. It's a desire that we all have. But have you ever stopped to think where are you looking to try and find meaning for your life? It's kind of like, how do you define yourself? And we look to many, many places, don't we, to try and define our lives, to try and give our lives meaning. Maybe you look to money and wealth and finance as a measure of your meaning. Uh, maybe it's career, job, the role that you play. Uh, maybe it's likes and follows and retweets, how much meaning you've got, how much worth you've got. Maybe it's your status, kind of who you are in the community and the station that you reach. Maybe it's your pleasure, fun, enjoyment is where you find meaning in your life. Maybe it's wisdom. Maybe it's learning. Maybe you're trying to distinguish yourself academically to add meaning to your life. Or maybe it's religion. Maybe it's rule following, box ticking, denying yourselves earthly pleasures because you think that's going to earn you some meaning. And that's just some of the places that we look to and some of the ways that we try and give our lives meaning. And honestly, it can feel like a bit of a puzzle, can't it? You know, a little bit of this bit here and a bit of that bit. I don't need that anymore, but then I need this constant juggling and rearranging of, of the puzzle pieces leaves us with no peace. Because we're never sure, have we done enough? Is there enough meaning in what I'm doing? Or should I be doing more? Should I not do that? And as we move together through the book of Ecclesiastes, this next 12 weeks, we're going to look for peace in our lives, meaning for our lives in the puzzle. Not just pieces of the puzzle that we need to rearrange to live the, a, a good life. We're going to look for true peace in the puzzle that is uh, life. Uh, and how important is that for us, given the way the world is at the moment? What is my life about? What am I doing with myself? Why am I even here? 
how do I define me in a world that it seems to change week by week? Where is the meaning from my life really coming from? Because lots of the things that we all looked to last year, 2019, to define our lives has just gone up in smoke, hasn't it? As a book then, Ecclesiastes is fascinating. It's often quoted, a little sentence here, maybe a passage there, uh, but not often preached and, and taught and explained, applied to our lives. It's unique. In the Bible, it is one of a kind. It's pessimism literature. So it's going to try and teach us, give us wisdom, direction, point us to somebody, something, by showing us the other side of the coin, your other option, so to speak. And so as we move through Ecclesiastes, it's going to sound and feel quite heavy and quite negative. We come to God's word and we want, a, we want to be refreshed. We often get an encounter that's positive and uplifting and that's not Ecclesiastes. It's quite heavy. It's a bit of a downer. Lots of previews of things here, of, of better days to come. Lots of themes and strands and shadows of somebody and something. It's a good apologetic. Uh, it's a good argument. It's a good reason for living your life in a, in a very particular way. And it shows you the alternative to that way. So it's the same way you might try and sell somebody some sun cream or sunscreen or sunblock, whatever you call the stuff that you rub into your skin to stop you burning in the sun. You might try and sell that by saying, buy this sun cream, because if you don't, you're going to burn. Or you might put an advertisement outside a petrol station or a gas station and say, look, uh, fill your car up now or you're going to break down. You, somebody's trying to make a point by showing you the negative alternative. A Bible scholar called Michael Eaton wrote that what then is the purpose of Ecclesiastes? It is an essay in apologetics. It defends the life of faith in a generous God by pointing to the grimness of the alternative. So the question in Ecclesiastes is not, does God exist? The two main voices that we hear in this book, the author and the, you know, and, and the teacher, they know that God exists. They know that God is always there. They're not atheists in any way. The question is, the point of Ecclesiastes is, does God matter? Is it worth it? Why, you know, what's, what's the alternative? So as we move through Ecclesiastes then, chapter by chapter, week by week, we're going to see what it says, we're going to see what it means, and we're going to see how it points us and draws us inescapably to the Savior who said that you study scriptures thoroughly because you think you're going to find eternal life, but you won't come to me so that you will have life, you may have life. So yes, there is tremendous value in studying Scripture as long as Christ is the key and the Lord is the lens through which we read Scripture. So, Ecclesiastes chapter 1, what is going on? Well, in verses 1 and 2, as Mark read for us, we get this 
introduction, we see that there are a couple of voices that we're going to hear in Ecclesiastes. There's the author, the compiler of the book, and there's the teacher, the proclaimer, the preacher, the person addressing the crowd, which is where the name of the book comes from. And in verses 1 and 2, we get this big, all-encompassing summary of what is then going to be unpacked and explained over the next few weeks. So Ecclesiastes 1.1, the words of the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, futile, futile, laments the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile. It's not a great start, is it? Maybe your Bible says something a little bit different here. Uh, everything is meaningless. Everything is vanity. Everything's useless, pointless. Everything is smoke. Whatever particular word your Bible chooses and uses, the idea is that life is like a vapor. Life is like smoke. Looks very real. Looks very strong. Can impact you and affect you in very real ways. But when you try and grab it and take hold of it and direct it, you can't. Futile, futile, laments the teacher. Absolutely futile. Everything is futile, smoke, pointless, meaningless, vanity. So throughout this book, he's going to return back to this idea. Life, stuff, lots of stuff is without real substance, value, permanence, significance, meaning. It's just not real. It's this idea that we're going to come back to again and again and again. Here, like I said, verse 2, he says everything. And what he means is everything that you do in your own strength, in your own power, with your own human effort. He says in verse 3, what benefit do people get from all the effort which they expend on earth? Again, he's starting off with this big picture example. He's setting out his stall. This is his thesis. He's going to break it down and unpack it, and then going to be some more specific examples of the efforts and the particular things that we do to try and give our own lives meaning. And as we move through them over the next few weeks, I'm absolutely convinced that they're going to challenge us, that they're going to convict us. And then, Lord willing, they're going to change us. So after this big picture introduction, it's not a very positive start, is it? The teacher expands a bit and gives some examples. So let's read together verses 3 to 8 of Ecclesiastes 1. What benefit do people get from all the effort which they expend on earth? A generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same through the ages. The sun rises and the sun sets. It hurries away to a place from which it rises again. The wind goes to the south and circles around to the north. Round and round the wind goes and on its round it returns. All the streams flow into the sea, but the sea is not full. And to the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All this monotony is tiresome. No one can bear to describe it. The eye is never satisfied with seeing, nor is the ear ever content with hearing. So he's saying, look, what real lasting meaning are you getting from all your busyness and all your efforts? He gives some examples from nature to show that being busy, being having a routine, working away, moving, 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 
by itself just achieves very, very little. Whatever you're doing just to keep busy has very little lasting meaning. He's saying, look, compared to mountains, oceans, compared to the natural world, our life is short and makes very little impact on the world around us. He says, a generation comes and a generation goes, but the earth remains the same through the ages. He says, all the streams flow into the sea, but it's never full. You can work and work and work, but there is very, very seldom permanent, lasting, and positive change. He says, no one, nobody can give all the examples from nature about how repetitive and routine and long-lasting the world is. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. The ear is never content with hearing. There's always more examples we could give about how short and meaningless your life is, is what he's saying. He says, you know, look, you can try really hard. Very little is going to change if you do it in your own effort. Look with me, verse 9. What exists now is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing truly new on earth. Is there anything about which someone can say, look at this. It's new. It was already done long ago, before our time. Nobody remembers the former events, nor will anybody remember the things that have not even yet happened. Everything's going to fade from memory, is what he's saying Maybe you hear this and you think, well, hang on a minute, there's been loads of new stuff. Loads of new discoveries and human progress and people in their own efforts have really made some positive changes to the world. I read this week that this, this doesn't deny mankind's creativity or inventiveness. Just the ultimate newness of our accomplishments. You know, for example, there's no... Essentially, there's no difference between man voyaging to the moon and the discovery of America. Different points of arrival, sure, different vehicles. But essentially, it's the same action, it's the same results. And then he says, look, I, this is in verse 12, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And it kind of hints towards Solomon being the teacher in this book. So I've, I've been king. So I've decided to carefully, thoroughly examine all that's been accomplished on earth. And as the king, as, as, as a wise and rich and powerful person, he has access to records and scenarios and access to stuff that regular people like you and me don't. And he's concluded, he concluded, God has given people a burdensome task that keeps them occupied. I reflected on everything that is accomplished by men on earth. Maybe your Bible says under the sun here. I reflected on everything that uh, is accomplished by man under the sun. Is, again, it's another way of saying your human efforts in the flesh on earth under the sun. Stuff that we all do while we're busying around here. And he says, I concluded everything he has accomplished is futile. It's like chasing the wind. He's going to come back to this idea. It's like chasing the wind again and again and again. Everything that we do in our own strength and power to try and define our lives, to try and add meaning to our lives, is like chasing the wind. 
He says, what's bent cannot be straightened. What's missing cannot be supplied. He's saying, look, we are fallible. We are fallen. We are flawed. There is a limit to what we will ever do in our own strength and power of, by our own means and for our own selves. And then he rounds out this very positive start to the book by saying, look, I'm already pretty wise. In fact, I'm wiser than anybody that's gone before me. Uh, I've acquired much wisdom and knowledge. Uh, so I decided to find out if being really wise and being ultra-knowledgeable is actually better than, than not. And he said, even trying to find out that, trying to compare living a wise life and living a foolish life, that's really hard. And that's like chasing the wind. There is literally no winning here when you live your life under the sun, in the flesh, and by your own efforts. Trying to be smart and wise is very hard. Try and see if being smart and wise is better than not, that's hard too. And he says, really, whoever increases his knowledge merely increases his heartache. So straight away then from this first chapter, we're seeing what is meant by pessimism literature, aren't we? Anything and everything you do in your own strength, for your own agenda, in your own power, to add meaning to your own life is futile, pointless, vanity, meaningless, smoke, and it's like chasing the wind. He's painting a picture of a human-centered life under the sun, life lived on earth in our own strength and power, and it's fruitless, it's pointless, it's meaningless, because we're fallible and we're flawed and we're fallen and we're never going to add meaning to our own lives in our own power. It's all going to be forgotten. He's quite deterministic and quite pessimistic here, isn't he? says that everything is going to happen regardless whether you try really hard, take control of it or not. And that there seems to be no hope of anything new, fresh, vibrant, meaningful, lasting meaning in your life. What exists now is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing Nothing is truly new. It's the same. Everything is as was. Everything is as will be. Nothing new, vibrant, fresh, meaningful in your life. Surely, that is not how we want to live, is it? Trying to add meaning and value to our own lives only to be forgotten and fade from memory when we die. And to know deep down that whilst we are busy with this and that, to know deep down that none of it really matters. Nobody wants to live like that, do they? Nobody wants to feel like that. Nobody wants to feel like the project that you're working on the students that you teach, the patients that you see, the clients that you're billing, the business that you're doing, and the customers that you're serving is absolutely futile, pointless, meaningless, smoke. Surely, you don't want to live like that, knowing deep down that anything and everything you're doing is pointless. 
Surely you don't want to live like that. No peace, no true, lasting inner peace, just a gradual decline and disappearance of enthusiasm for life because deep down you know it's all pointless. It's all wood, hay and straw. It's just an endless striving towards things that are just not even going to last. They're not even going to matter that much when you get there. You're just chasing the wind. Surely there has to be more to our lives than the view given here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Surely this is not what we are made for, just to be a massive group of wind chasers. So, if Ecclesiastes in particular, chapter 1 is given us this big picture, negative view, the other side of the coin. Where's the positive? Where is the meaning? Where is the true and lasting meaning? Where do we get something that's new and fresh and vibrant from in our lives? Well, right into the Corinthians, Paul says, Christ died for all. So that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised. So then, from now on, we acknowledge no one from an outward human point of view. Even though we have known Christ from such a human point of view, now we do not know him in that way any longer. So then, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. What is old has passed, and look, what is new has come. So rather than being constantly busy under the sun in your earthly life, in your own strength and for your own purposes, Paul is saying that we should no longer live for ourselves like this. The old has passed away. The old way of doing things Ecclesiastes 1, life under the sun, just thinking about ourselves and what we want to do and how we want to do it and what we want to be about. We should no longer live like that for ourselves, but that we should live for him who died and was raised. Paul is saying there that when you put your faith and hope and trust in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, there is on offer for you a life that is new. Fresh, vibrant, and meaningful, an eternal and abundant life that begins in the here and now. And then in a letter to the Colossians, he says, Whatever you are doing, work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord and not for people, because you know that you will receive your inheritance from the Lord as the reward. Serve the Lord Christ. So, rather than read Ecclesiastes chapter 1 and give up our jobs and roles and efforts completely in a massive shower of ecclesiastical disappointment, what we should be doing instead as a result of an encounter with God through Ecclesiastes chapter 1, what we should be doing is whatever we are doing to work at it with enthusiasm as to the Lord. So yes, 
Keep on working those projects, teaching those students, billing those clients, doing that business, serving those customers. But realize that your attitude in that is so important. Because without doing it all as to the Lord, it's just going to be faded and it's going to be forgotten. But living a Jesus-focused life, living for the Lord, serving the Lord Christ, as Paul says, adds a permanence to our lives and adds meaning to what we do in a way that is lasting, is going to outlast all of us and the creation that Solomon points to as being, well, look, your life is pointless because the world's been here and it'll still be here when you're gone. Living a Jesus-focused, Christ-centered life adds permanence to your life that will outlast even that. And it adds a permanence to your life, meaning to your life that is real and rich and deep and that we will never find in our own strength, under the sun, by ourselves. So I would challenge you this week, and every week for that matter, to totally reevaluate why you are doing everything that you're doing. Is it to try and add meaning to and define your own life? Is it just for a paycheck? Is it because you enjoy it and get pleasure from it? Do you even know why you're doing half the stuff that you do? None of those reasons are good enough. Living for the weekend, waiting for your salary, working to pay a mortgage, doing things to try and make yourself feel better about yourselves, keeping busy to try and add meaning to your life and define yourself. None of those reasons are good enough. You are a believer in the risen Lord Jesus. So whatever you're doing, you need to be able to trace a path to Jesus. Like Paul said to the Colossians, whatever you're doing, work at it wholeheartedly with enthusiasm as if you're doing it for Jesus himself personally. So I would challenge you this week to totally reevaluate why you are doing what you're doing. Can you truly say that you are doing it all as to the Lord? Is that a conscious part of your day every day? I'm doing this to show Jesus to people, to glorify God in gratitude for myself. Can you trace a path from whatever you're doing to your risen Lord and Savior? Because he did die as that substitutionary sacrifice for your sins, as we talked about over Easter weekend, because he died and was raised to life, Jesus offers you a completely new perspective, a completely new life to the one on display here in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. And in the life that Jesus offers you, there is something new. There is something lasting. There is rich and deep and beautiful meaning to your life. He offers you a path that adds eternal value to your life, adds meaning to your life that you will never find outside of Jesus. He offers you life 
and he offers you life abundant, meaning that will outlast each and every one of us, an opportunity to be part of something that is bigger than ourselves. You know, as we, as we continue uh, in Ecclesiastes, we're going to get some very specific examples of the things that we do to try and add meaning to our lives. And we're going to see what Jesus said about them and how Jesus changed them, fulfilled them, or lived differently to this perspective. But for now, Solomon here, the teacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, says that everything is futile. Everything is pointless, meaningless, useless, and smoke. And he says that from a human, fleshly, under the sun perspective, what exists now is what will be. What has been done is will be done. And there is nothing truly new. Nothing new. No real and lasting purpose, meaning, peace in anything. It's all just a puzzle that we're essentially rearranging the pieces for. But none of it's going to last. But let me tell you this. Please listen to me now. There is meaning to your life. There is lasting and eternal meaning available to you. Being part of the kingdom of God is the highest and most important meaning that, we could, that any of us could ever have in our earthly lives now because it is going to outlast each and every one of us. It's going to outlast everything and anything that we do under the sun, on the earth, to try and add value and meaning to our own lives. You and me, we, us, have the opportunity to be part of that by putting our hope and faith and trust in Jesus as Lord and Savior and then getting up every day and living for him. Again, I would challenge you this week to totally reevaluate what are you doing and why are you doing those things? Can you truly say that you're living for the Lord? So in a huge contrast to Ecclesiastes chapter 1, yes, there is meaning for your life. There is meaning in your life. There is lasting and eternal meaning and value available to you. But it comes only through Jesus because of who he is and what he has done and the amazing, saving, life-changing grace that he shows you. So true meaning for our lives begins with, and then we'll continue eternally in Jesus. Let's pray.